Hello, hello. Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. Each player has a unique story that's shaped the way they approach their instrument. So join me as I invite some amazing drummers on to dissect the top five influences that made them who they are today. This week's guest is Jesse Congos of the band Congos. I had the pleasure of opening up for and sharing a bus with Congos for two tours in 2019, and those memories are some of my favorite ever from being on the road. I certainly shower him with praise at the top of our conversation, but I truly did watch Jesse from side stage almost every night in awe of his creativity and incredible uniqueness behind the kit. This episode is long overdue, and if you haven't done it yet, please take a deep dive into the Congos catalog. It's a treasure trove of truly great songs and performances. So please enjoy my conversation with Jesse Congos. creativity and your sounds are so tasteful so musical and all joking aside you really are one of my favorite drummers so uh i'm well, so happy to have you on the show man well thank you but i you know we'll, we'll get all the niceties out up front and then we can start <laughs> ripping each other again exactly yeah yeah um but yeah no i that those tours we di- did together with um fitness you know the, there was a lot of good experiences, but also just watching you. You know, I, I feel like we we really upped each other's game. You know, because we play different, but uh, I feel like similarly, like I could see the the real quality in your playing. I could see the solidity, and it made me want to go and practice. I haven't practiced in, in many years. You know, <laughs> yeah, um, and it made me want to practice again. So you know, that was such a such a good time, and also you know, learning from each other was was great. Yeah, I I spend most time just watching you side stage. So. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, All right. Well, there we go. Anyway, circle jerk um, over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I do want to say I uh, in in researching some of this stuff, like the specific songs and stuff that I wanted to bring on. I noticed that you have the first song off every album is a is a Jesse do Congo I? song. Yeah. Okay. So. I, you know, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. Um, you know, I, I think I was I was writing more, especially in the early years. You know, I was just writing more songs. You know, so it, part of it is an odds thing, and then you know, I, I think rhythm is such a heavy part of our music that you know maybe maybe that's part of it too. That we kind of wanted to open the albums with something, you know, that's rhythmic rhythmic heavy, sure, and uh, percussion heavy. But um, I, I'd have to go back and look at the albums to kind of analyze how and why that happened. But sure. you know, I'm sure my brothers would have something to say about the ego aspect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, if people don't know, uh, Congos is your last name. It's a band of, of four brothers. Well, four of the five. I won't get into that. But, um, yeah, you guys all write songs. And uh, you obviously are one of the main singers in the band. So um, from when you write, are drums the last thing you think about? I would say most of the time it is one of the later things that I think about. Um, you know, we just being brothers and growing up in a family with music. My dad was in the business for a long time. You know, he taught us piano. We all learned piano. That was our first thing. And um, so a lot of my songs I write at the piano. I also play a little guitar. But, you know, I got into drums heavily when I was a teenager. So it wasn't my first thing. And so I think it's similar in the writing process as well. You know, harmony and melody come first. Um, generally speaking, unless it's something that's really inspired from a rhythm, you know, then mm-hmm. then I'll start with that. But um, yeah, I, I would say even though drums became my primary instrument, you know, it wasn't the first thing in my musical sort of life. Mm-hmm. What I love about a lot of the songs, and if you guys want to go on Spotify or any, I know some people don't like Spotify, but um, at least on Spotify, I know it shows the credits, so it shows who writes what songs, and a lot of times with with your songs. The vocal melodies, you have a cool way with rhythm. You don't think in the context of, okay, it's, you know, 4-4. A lot of your songs, you just want to get a vocal idea out, and then whatever the the time signature, whatever that is, the drums will figure it out and kind of dance around that. Um, So that's why... I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them may be that 
I really, when I'm singing, I have to simplify my playing <laughs> because, you know, I can only do so much at the same time. You know, I, it's splitting your attention in that way, uh, you know, which I've gotten better at over the years. But really, you, you do have to pull back on, on what attention you're giving to the drums while you're singing. So mm -hmm. it, it, it has this natural way of perhaps making, the, making space for each other. Um, yeah. And then, obviously, you know, it's it's hard to, to not think about rhythm if you're a drummer, you know. Uh, and that goes into the, the structure of the melody and the, the vocal phrases as well. Sure. Yeah, one of my favorite drummers, I, I, I've said this at Ignazium uh, on the show, is Levon Helm. And he yeah. has a really cool way of, because he is obviously one of the vocalists of the band, so he thinks in that way. Yeah, watching that last waltz, you know, I knew, I knew the band, I kind of knew who he was, but watching that, you know, the Scorsese movie, it, it does have that sort of God tier status, you know, oh, when absolutely. you start to see, see just how good they were and how sort of, you know, essential they were, you know, there wasn't a lot of frills. There was just an essence in what they did and him, especially like his playing and his singing together, you know? Mm -hmm. um, all right. So I, I, I've tried to make this show before we get into a few songs that I want to play from your career. Um, I try and steer away from this being a gear-heavy show, but because your your drum sounds, and again, we'll play some songs, people go down the Congo's rabbit hole. There's no one way you do anything in that band. It's so cool. Each song has its own little world. What's your ethos on miking techniques? Um, uh, yeah, a lot of it is different, you know, because of the way the songs arise. You know, we, we each write sort of individually. So a lot of times a song will just kind of come out of somebody's little bedroom studio, you know, as a demo and a bunch of it will be programmed. And then as the ideas come, we'll say, all right, let's quickly get that down. And so you don't spend necessarily too much time in prepping the tracking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially, uh, you know, setting up 12 drum mics and everything, uh, I don't have the patience for all the time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it'll just be one mic. But, you know, over the years, I have developed some, some things that I do like, uh, some consistent things that I do like. You know, I really do like the um, Glenn John's sort of overhead pattern. And uh, well, actually, this mic right here, I'm borrowing it from my dad. It's, a, it's an old um, 269, and that's what, the, what he used, you know, as the overheads. And it is a special mic. And then uh, I like to get away from the drum set. So I do throw up close mics, but I want as much space as I can. Yeah, and the studio that we were in, in in LA recording a lot of this stuff, you know, had high ceilings. We could really get the mics far away. And so we got some Coles 4038s, and those are a big part of the drum sound, especially if I can get them 10, 20 feet away. Wow. Um, and so you, you do have to kind of think about the delay and the, the you know, the physical distance that's going to create the the latency and the flaming and stuff like that but you can use that really nicely and actually make it part of the sound mm -hmm. um so you know when you hear a drum set in a room you're usually not <laughs> right next to it you know your ears not in front of the skin um so that has a sound which is cool and and you can do a lot with it but in general i like the air to do a lot of the work you know to do the mm. compression and to do um to do the texture where the sound per you know peripherates if that's a permeates word. permeates, permeates. Yeah. thank you through the, through the air yeah all right well let's just hop into a few songs from your career so i'm gonna play them and just tell me where they take you I'm only joking from Lunatic, the album, the Congo's album. So uh, that's that song was actually the song that kind of broke us in South Africa before we had anything going on in in America and the rest of the world. We were living in America, but you know had been a band for many years, couldn't get anything going, banging our heads against the wall, and we kind of randomly emailed um, radio DJs in South Africa where we grew up, and you know, guy opened the email, he liked the song, put it on the radio there, like a big sort of national radio station, and almost overnight we had a career, at least in one territory. 
And so I think something about the visceral nature of that song really clicked. And obviously the drums are a huge part of it. So the song, the story I always tell about that song is that I was working on it uh, in the studio and I played it to my mom. And there was one section, like, you know, four bars that had these heavy tom sort of layered you know, African drum sounds. And she's like, fuck, Jess, that's, that should be the whole song. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and she, I think she did say fuck, you know, so. <laughs> well, so do you so, in that song, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I, you know, it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek lyric, and, and it's this combination of fun plus really heavy, you know. Um, so I, I thought, well, I'll, okay, I'll try it. And so in the studio, I laid out every single drum and percussive instrument I could find, you know, and uh, my dad had collected all kinds of percussion. So we had all sorts of African drums, Latin American drums, you know, toms from different drum sets. And I spaced them out. And at the time, we were using a digital performer to record the DAW. And there's a function called polar where you can just let it loop and it layers it and it sums it. And you can let it go literally to eternity. And so I did like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 passes of the whole song just walking around, playing different, you know, yeah. playing that rhythm essentially, because uh, I wanted it to sound like there's a there's a tribe in Africa, a region in Africa called Burundi, and they're known for, you know, 20, 30 drummers playing in unison, and they have these complex, amazing patterns, and a lot of the recordings are old, so it's like, you know, some field recording of a of a tape that's like distorting to fuck, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it's just the most explosive, amazing sound. So I was trying to sort of create something of that. And I distorted it. I processed it through analog gear to really, really like push it and not, you know, uh, not be, uh, not hold back on that. So that really became the sort of underlying essence of the song that a lot of people, I think, connect to. Sure. Uh, what what was the, the the mindset behind you going from swung to more of that straight feel in those toms? <laughs> You know, I, I get asked that a lot, but no, most people don't know how to phrase that question, you know, especially if they're not drummers. Um, in fact, <laughs> um, somebody sent us a video of, of Billie Eilish talking about it because I guess she like liked the song and she like breaks it down. She's like, listen to this. It's like it goes from dun 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 to dun 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 dun. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I can't remember exactly how that came about. But, you know, my brother Johnny and I played in a lot of jazz combos, you know, mm-hmm. at Arizona State, we were studying there. And that was like one of the cool things to do was, you know, you know, improvisational music was to play with the time, play with either the the tempo or play with the feel and going from, you know, like Tony Williams and those guys from the Miles Davis Quintet, like they were masters at shifting the feel mm-hmm. and playing against each other. And so that was just kind of a thing that we did for fun. And so it kind of made its way into this track and then doing it consistently uh, you know, every every two bars or whatever, and layering it with the extra drums, drums had this hypnotic effect. You know, because each time I knew it was coming round, like on the twentieth pass, I was like, okay, here comes the straight bit. And yeah. so each one was a little bit different. And I really love that interplay between straight and shuffle. You know, like Chuck Berry kind of thing, where some guys playing straight and some guys playing shuffle. I just always loved that. And anything that could kind of get you into a trance sort of uh, hypnotic state was was where the song was going well it's a rhythmic hook um and it for some reason it just adds this primal power to it that it's just shifting it from swung to to straight is like it yeah it just makes you want to go to battle you know it's so it's so (laughs) cool yeah that's you know that's fun especially if it's a good crowd you know you can get them jumping like it trips them up a little bit but then they they kind of get it you know, and even subconsciously they get it before they consciously get it. Yeah, and it's it's really fun. Um, you know, I I do think that that the rhythmic interference, you know, the mathematical analysis of that, if you could really dig into it, probably would provide some reason. You know, how it corresponds to our listening apparatus and our rhythms, our heart rhythms, and all that. I I do believe there are connections there, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I'm not pretending to understand it, but you have a sense of it. You know, when you kind of let your state get into it. And so I think there's something there. Well, for the sake of time, let's just move on to number two.
going to fast forward to the end of this song as well, when it kind of fades out and you see the both sides. Oh, yeah. Right, and so people, please on that that track especially, uh, listen to this part of the podcast on headphones because that's going to benefit you a little more. But um, all right, yeah, go ahead, man. It's funny because I I only have one headphone in right now, so I'm only hearing <laughs> one side of it. Nice. Um, that not all our songs are shuffles, by the way. <laughs> Just <laughs> the first two that you picked. Um, I that, didn't realize that was that, yeah. really fun. That's a that's a Johnny song, and um, you know he, the demo had programmed drums, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he kind of got a really interesting feel and and sort of unquantized thing about it, you know, which everybody really liked. So we tried drums multiple times and just couldn't get it until eventually something started to settle in. And we ended up double tracking the drums and splitting them left and right. And um, that that there's sort of a New Orleans thing, you know, um, going on there greasy you know the way i processed the drums i really wanted a dirty sort of sloshy loose mm-hmm. uh again hypnotic i use that word a lot you know especially with that harmony that's going on there it's very drone like um so that was a really fun one to work on because i i did so many passes of the drums uh couldn't find one that we really liked and then we found two that we liked (laughs) so we couldn't pick which one to keep so we used them both and did split them hard left and right as though there were two drummers Mm -hmm. and um uh you know we opened our i think we opened our set with that song on the tour that we were on together and it we we liked it because it's a it's a way to ease you in without kind of banging you over the head uh you know it's it's, there's enough groove going on to really get the crowd sort of warmed up but not like in your face Mm -hmm. and uh that that was i think i think the sound of the drums was integral to that because compressed the shit out of them you know printed reverb into the compression and stuff like that to uh make it a vibe thing rather than you know super clean production mm-hmm. um and then at the end you know that's when i i feel like i do my best playing <laughs> it's like after the song's over and i'm just fucking around and there's like you know an extra 12 bars of of taking or whatever sure and so i screw around and then somebody usually says oh that was cool do that again you know so <laughs> so that was what was going on at the end was just me messing around and we're like okay well let's end the track like that you know sort of trail off into you know um just an oblivion of fucking around sure yeah, it's it's cool with the open hi hats, and sometimes it doesn't. They're like talking to each other, then they're in unison. And um, I'm assuming, I mean, that's not that wasn't purposeful. It's just like okay, it lined up here because they were just two different takes. And yeah, there there was some editing going on because you know um, not everything worked together. So mm-hmm. I shifted some stuff around and, and picked and chose stuff that I liked, you know. But but the the actual taking was kind of off the top of my head. Um, I I think I can't remember exactly, but. One of the kits, you know, I switched up cymbals and hi-hats and stuff for the two different kits. One of them had, like, I took 20-inch ride cymbals for my hi-hats, you know. And I'm I'm a big big fan of big hi-hats anyway. Yeah. But um, that hi-hat feel is something that I really paid attention to. Um, Just, again, that that not-quite-swung, not-quite-straight thing. And, you know, the, the feel of the stick on a big hat is different, you know, and mm. if you mic it and if you allow the compression to do some of the work for like the the audio compression to do some of the work for you in terms of the groove, that's that's what I was focusing on. Yeah, well, you killed it, man. So. All right, everyone, I wanted to share some exciting news that the latest season of the podcast Food on Tour has just begun. Touring drummer and good buddy of mine, Mike Robinson, who plays with Oliver Tree He's covered a few gigs for me with Cannons. He's also played with K-Flay, Delwater Gap, Blame My Youth, and many more. He dives into mouthwatering conversations with professional musicians and artists to uncover their most cherished bars and restaurants to frequent on tour, from hidden gems to five-star meals at iconic establishments around the world. Fans of food, music, and travel can look forward to new episodes every Monday. So download Food on Tour wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give Mike a, a, a sup for me. What a horrible way to end this. Cheers. All right, next song. 
I was wondering if there was a way to write a song about California without being cliche. Cause when you live in LA, it's sunny every day. You can be straight okay and get high every day in LA. You see, there's blue skies, blue sea, a lot of blue eyes. It's a blue state, a blue state. So that song is by Chevy Mustang. Uh, the song is called Blue State. And I actually love that song. I know that whole project is is kind of a, a fun take. And, you know, there's a lot of things we could say about that project. But I think that's a beautiful song. And I remember you on the bus. It was the second tour we did together. And maybe I think it was the first time you showed Max that. You were on the guitar and you were just kind of strumming it. And you were showing him that. And I remember right away, I was like, oh, that song's badass. And I almost was like, don't, don't use <laughs> yeah, it on Chevy know, Mustang, because this is a good song. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny? Uh, Chevy Mustang, I don't think he existed at that point. Um, I don't think so either. You know, so Chevy Mustang, for you know, he is does have some mystery and some allure. But, you know, it's Max from Eve Six, his alter ego. Yeah. Um, is this amazing artist called Chevy Mustang, who's the most irreverent, sort of weird, electro-European techno dude who say, claims he's from Fresno, California, you know, he's, <laughs> he's an unbelievable kind of concept in himself. Yeah. But uh, we started making these fun records and I had that song Blue State for, I wrote it basically for us, but I didn't feel like we could pull it off for whatever reason. It's like, the, you know, the irony in the lyrics, it just wasn't like sitting, it didn't sound good in my voice. Mm-hmm. So on the bus, I was like, hey, Max, you could sing this, you know? And I wanted him to sing it, and we we couldn't quite get it right. But then when Chevy Mustang arose, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Because the song has some emotion Mm -hmm. and some thought behind it. And, you know, like Max. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but the irony of it was just perfectly suited to Chevy's voice. So pretty much everything on the track was already done. And then I had Chevy sing it. Um, the, the, The production and the drums of it, you know, were sort of... Lennon inspired, you know, Lennon's a hero of mine. Yeah, and slap back and yeah. So like the, I think the the track "How Do You Sleep at Night," um, you know, the drum sound specifically on that and the playing. I think it was Jim Keltner. I'm not sure. Um, it's either him or Alan White. I know they both did a little bit on that record. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that that is a one mic recording on the drums, and it was it's my little cajon kit, you know the, the what I would use for the acoustic gigs. So oh okay, it's yeah, like yeah. a kick a kick pedal on the cajon, and then you know some hi hats and a snare with a bunch of with a towel on top, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was an SM7. I just put the SM7 in front of the kit, and it just sounded so good and small. But when you you know you you distort it a little, compress it, and put some slap on it, it had that Lennon sound, and I just loved it. So that's kind of where that came from. It's a really good song, so people go check that out and check out a bunch of Chevy Mustang stuff because yeah, we all kind it's of it's a rabbit hole you can go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those first couple tracks on the bus, you know, I can't wait to sort of. I want Chevy to blow up, you know, because it would make the whole thing make so much more sense, you know, for him to do a song with Kevin Federline and another one with Evan Rachel Wood, and then <laughs> he did one with um, People Mover, you know. So mm. it's he he's like an enigma, and I feel like it's only a matter of time before people realize that. Yeah, and I kind of want to move on just so that people go, what the hell are they talking about? I have to check this dude out. So yeah. Chevy Mustang, wherever you guys... Uh... But yeah, that, that song uh, was written by Jesse, and I, I, I love it. Um, all right, Thank last you, one, and then we'll switch to yours. I'll stop being so selfish. song rocks yeah so that's the that's my dad john congos uh the original um congos <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you hear that and you hear some of his other tracks like he's gonna step on you again it'll all kind of click and go okay I, you know i get this band i get their sound you know 
If you haven't heard him, you know, some, you know, people might think, oh, this is an interesting blend of influences. You know, I've never really heard that. But then you hear him, okay, now I get it. Um, <laughs> he's definitely a major influence on us. He, he grew up in South Africa and was sort of a teen star there in the 60s. Then he moved to the UK to sort of pursue his career further and had some hits as an artist and a songwriter. He never quite cracked America, but, you know, he had a su substantial career. And the, his two breakout tracks, that one and He's Gonna Step On You Again, were this really cool blend of um, African rhythms and world rhythms and sort of glam rock, you know, like uh, T-Rex style mm. glam rock. And they were pretty revolutionary records, you know. I, I think they, they changed a lot and they influenced a lot of people. And this was like 1970, 71 that it was, you know, it was big. And and then just growing up with him as a dad and, you know, he had a recording studio and had a bunch of gear and instruments. So it's it's pretty much the dream as far as having access to this life and, and you know, making music part of your life and part of your career. Um, so, you know... The, three three brothers and we all did it together we all had that upbringing we all had that support system you know it's it's pretty amazing and sometimes you kind of have to get off the road like we have been now for whatever since covid um to kind of appreciate that so it's kind of it's cool for you to play that i wasn't expecting that yeah uh super contemporary sounding i mean that record could come out today and you'd be like this is rad and it's still doing something that i might not have heard before uh yeah it's timeless and sounding. the stuff he hasn't released like the stuff he he, he finished stuff to like 99 percent, and he's one of those people like who will not put it out if it's you know if it's at 99 percent. Mm -hmm. and then it's literally stuff been sitting there for 20 30 years like amazing records uh, and we all know them we've heard them and we're, we you know every now and then we try and like get him to like oh let's finish it and put it out you know because he, I swear he could release stuff that he made 20, 30 years ago and it would sound like it was made yesterday. You know, he was sure. very, very into tech, very into gear. He had one of the first samplers, like the Fairlight um, sampler that came out. And, you know, he, he worked on the Def Leppard record and he programmed the drums on that. So, like, he was, he was a gearhead before there were, you know, many gearheads. And I think that definitely influenced the way he made records. And I know you just kind of skated past the whole programming of the Def Leppard record part, but I kind of want to have you back <laughs> on just to discuss that alone. So okay. we'll leave that there, but let's just hop into your top five. So number one is Jack DeJanet with the Keith Jarrett Trio, and the song is The Cure, and we're going to start it around six minutes. I mean, the Keith Jarrett trio to me is is pretty much the pinnacle of human musicians. You know, I I feel like I could take a few groups from different parts of the world, you know, who have reached the apex. And as far as like Western jazz or you know whatever realm you want to put that music in, I feel like they are the pinnacle. Three absolute geniuses, you know, Keith Jarrett, Jack DeJohnette, and Gary Peacock, and um, and I think the the confidence that they have in each other kind of shines in their music because Keith Jarrett on the piano is absolutely holding it down. You know, mm -hmm. like there's, you have zero discomfort in his sense of time. Um, and then Jack DeJohnette at that point can literally fuck around and do whatever he wants <laughs> and bend it and twist it. And, uh, um, that, that's what I love is that they can take turns and somebody's going to hold the fort, you know? And you, I like they they kind of, I've listened to pretty much their entire catalog. You know, it's been on since we were kids. And then when I really got into jazz, like Jack DeJohnette and Tony Williams were my, my two guys and probably, you know, Jack in the sort of close number one spot. Mm -hmm. um, but his drum sound, his ability to 
texturize things and not be too attached to subdivisions and like the perfection of subdivisions. You know, he's he's like a musician as opposed to a drummer. You know, there's there's spirit in what he plays, and um, I got to see them live. You know, they're they're pretty old at the time. Is um, is at UCLA actually, and they did a lot of sort of freeform stuff. You know, they played standards, but then some stuff where they would, you know just take a ten minute detour. And uh, we were really into that style of music at the time, and it was pretty inspirational. Is his Tom sound, is that a big, big thing for you? So the, the, um, the label they're on is called ECM, and I think if you want to find some of the, basically the best sort of high art music in the world, you can check out ECM. Um, and the, I believe his name is Manfred Eicher. Is the, he's the engineer, and then he became the sort of head of the label, you know. And he has a very specific way of recording. And also, again, it's you can hear this. You can hear the air in that sound, you know. Mm. You don't feel like you're hearing microphones. Uh, and the way he tunes his drums, you know, I tune my drums differently than than a lot of people. And I and I'm just guessing on what I think his tuning is. You know, I, I it sounds to me like the the, the batter head is tight. And the bottom head is loose. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, so I, I play with that a lot because he gets a, an amazing stick response, but there's real body to the sound, you know. And so, again, the space between the microphone and the drums is huge. And then the openness of the drums. And in that kind of music, you really can let the the tones of the drums and the notes of the drums be a part of it. You know, you're not too worried about, like, is this going to fit in my rock pop mix, you know. You can sure. let those notes. and and he's a piano player too, so you can hear the the harmony in his drums and the drum the tom tuning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always loved your. Is it a, is it the ten inch or the twelve inch? Yeah, so I I I, so I flipped. I'm trying to think. I have to look. I don't have my drum set. So I put the big one first and the little one second. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I tune the little one like I crank it up to like um, you know like this little like an effects tom you know yeah uh, where you can get those tones and those uh, like almost like a timbali kind of thing you know exactly um all right so for the sake of time i know jack's your your guy but let's just move on to carlton barrett on uh bob marley's roots rock and reggae and it's from the album uh, rasta man vibration from 1976 So I, that's not, it's definitely not my favorite Bob Marley song, but as far as the zone that the band gets into and, you know, the drums especially, I, I practice to that a lot as a teenager. You know, I would put those records on and literally just play along for hours, you know, and try and bury that groove. And mm. um, that's probably the most valuable practice I ever did, you know, beyond chops or anything. Because I don't have a lot, I just don't have the patience to get chops. Um, <laughs> but um, I do have the patience to kind of sit in a groove for a while and and try and absorb it. And uh, I d- it doesn't really get better than that, I don't think. And I, you know, I saw the Whalers a couple times post Marley, obviously. Um, and whoever's playing with them now, you know, there's a couple different guys. It's it's I would say almost as good. Like it's it's world class. And we did a festival with him one time. We got to watch him from side stage. And just that patience, you know, is probably the best word that I can think of mm. to wait for that beat to come, you know. And just, wait, you know, whenever it comes, it comes, and you're just waiting there for it. I, you could kind of see that and sense that nobody was in a hurry. Um, the ability to wait for that, you know, two and four, where the kick drum falls or whatever, like that is something I feel like I could basically pursue for the rest of my life well you do it well on the song i, I, I was gonna play it but i want to know um oh, yeah. you do a, a a feel like that and it it feels good you can tell you had the patience <laughs> to learn that stuff 
Well, yeah, I would, you know, reggae is one of those things that I feel like most people should never really try seriously. Like, you know, just leave it, <laughs> leave it to the pros. Yeah. And like we do it for fun and, and incorporate it into our music a bit, but it's almost one of those things where like, okay, we probably shouldn't touch that. That's like sacred, you know? <laughs> sure. Hey, y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co., it's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye you have a lot of good hi-hat work that I can tell. Um, for me, I think, oh, Stuart Copeland, but I'm like, no, Jesse's probably <laughs> dived a lot deeper than that. So that's just my well, you he's, know, surface He's like level. a gateway into that stuff, I think, yeah. you know, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I like that about him. Um, but I th- is, is Stevie Wonder next on the list? I can't remember. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, because yeah, because I can talk about hi hats with him. <laughs> All right, well, let's just go on to Stevie Wonder, and so it's Stevie Wonder Superstition, and and this is actually Stevie on drums in this track, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Again, you know, sort of unequivocal genius. I, I picked him because when I heard that he played drums and he played pretty much all the essential instruments on a lot of his albums, you know, especially like Songs in the Key of Life, you know, um, that was sort of a revelation for me because I started to hear the the integration. Like normally when somebody, you know, does everything or it's done in bits like that you know one person at a time it's not a band tracking in the room together you can kind of hear that you can hear the separation and the lack of integrity um but with him because he's on another level even if he's not technically like the best drummer on the planet there's there's a spirit and a sort of intention behind his playing where i can just see him picturing all the other parts that he's going to put on there and how they need to play with each other and, um, you know, his hi-hat work especially is, it's intent that I can hear in there, you know? Mm-hmm. And the clavinet, the way it all, his vocal, it's like, it's like a single mind. It's almost as though you could have a real band with a single mind, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's truly inspirational because I'd, I'd play a lot of the stuff on our records. Like, we each play a lot of instruments. And so I'll be when I'm working on a song, I'll I'll play the guitar or the bass or whatever as long as it's not too complicated, and I'll do the drums and then I'll do the vocal and and so you're always looking for that 
integrity of a real band, sometimes even if you're tracking it in pieces, and there's nobody better to look to than him, I think, because, um, because everything is interconnected and everything is talking to each other. You know, every part on that record is talking to the other. And that's, that's kind of where I'm coming at from that, you know, is, is the ability for each thing to have a space and be related to the other thing as opposed to, you know, just layered in there in a sort of mechanical way. He mixed his own records too, for the most part. Of course he did. So, so you know, I can, and you know, the, the fact that he's blind is one of those like, you've, you know, the cliche is that it's his superpower, is that he, he can live in the music in a different way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can, if you close your eyes when you're mixing, it does change everything, you know? And I mix, I mix, um, a lot of our records and we, we all do mixing but you know I've kind of been heavily involved in that part of it and I can just see him in front of the console like pushing that hi-hat mic all the way up you know because because the intent of that part is 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 like dictating in a way you know the hi-hat's dictating a lot of that even though everything else is like holding it the the subdivisions and the sort of little playful stuff that the hi-hat is doing it's got to be there it's got to be loud and like you might look at that and go okay well that's just too loud. It shouldn't be mixed like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it absolutely works, you know? And so I kind of like that. I like that um, lack of restraint. <laughs> sure. And what is the reasoning for your hi-hat choice? Because you play huge hi-hats. So is it based on someone's sound, or did they just sit better in the mix that way? Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't remember. Because I, uh, I was obsessed with cymbals for a while. You know, I feel like every drummer kind of, especially if you're into jazz, like you become obsessed with cymbals for at least a period. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was at ASU in the jazz program, and, and it's like, oh, so-and-so got a Constantinople, and like he spent the money. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was like a big deal. And so just, you know, play, my dad had some old Peisty 602s as well. So like I had these sort of, some legendary s- symbols that I could play with. And I was like, well, let's try it. What happens if you use crash symbols? Or what happens if you use ride symbols? And because I'm really into recording and engineering and seeing how that works, like that became a thing for me. And on, I'm only joking, I, it was 20-inch ride symbols, you know, with like a jazz ride on top. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that for the most part, big hats mix better because the harmonics and the overtones are, you can get, you can get, the sensation of from a hi hat without having to kind of take up all that bandwidth in the high mids, you know, mm-hmm. and I re- I really like that, you know. I also like on a sample if you tune it down, it's like it's like you go from a twelve inch hat to a, like a twenty inch hat, you know, sure. on on a drum program, and I always like that. So I you know re- recreate it with actual big cymbals. That's awesome. Um, all right, so number four is uh, John Bonham on Zeppelin's Dire Maker on the album House of the Holy from 1973. A male <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i think him you know that i it's almost impossible to not be influenced by him you know whether you like them or not it's like as a drummer you can't not be influenced by him you know mm. um and i think the it's the con- commitment and the intent from him that really sort of is everything um and i guess one one way to look at it is, is you know if you've played in big venues like or if you sound check in big venues um, and you hit that kick drum and you like wait for the sound to come back, you know, you hit, you really pay attention to that space. And I feel like that's a big part of what he does is his drums sound huge. You know, the, the space is like a major part of it. The distance between the projection of the sound, you know, and the attack of the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just when you watch him play, you know, there's a couple drummers where I've watched them where their physicality is is in line with the sound of what they're playing you know like the physical intent of him hitting those drums it, you can hear it like you could you could 
turn the sound off and you would still be able to hear it because it's visible you know mm -hmm. there's no equivocation there like yes i'm hitting this one and i'm hitting it now and i'm hitting it hard <laughs> you know yeah, yeah and and it's that level of commitment that like i've aspired to because it's like a revelation you know if you don't think like well i'm going to hit this drum why am i hitting it why am i hitting it here you know and what is the purpose in the song it's like even if it's not a thought you've got to like feel that you know and i feel like he feels that like there's an absolute definite reason why i'm hitting this and i'm hitting it this way mm -hmm. so it th that's really kind of apart from the sound and all the other like like everything that people love about john bonham you know um if it's one word it's like intent or commitment you know and in that song specifically on that on that last fill we heard it's a very simple fill but he still plays with swung you know it, it's that weird bastardization of of time yeah um but you you just you just believe him you know yeah <laughs> like it works because he's hitting it and it's perfect yeah did i pronounce that right by the way is is it dire maker i think it's jamaica like it's, Jama it's like a i don't know like do you make her i think that's what it is i've never actually looked yeah. Oh, okay. So John, John, <laughs> I'm just going to say it and then I'll put it later on so I, as yeah. if I said it No, correctly. you should leave that in. That'll be a highlight of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go. Um, well, I mean, I, I am the first to say, which is why I do this, 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 this format is that I, there's so much I don't know. And this is why yeah. I'm, I, I'm excited to learn. So. All right. Number five. And I'm actually wearing the hat of, of the guy we're going to be talking about. Uh, which that's a whole nother story about that yeah. damn hat. But um, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> I'll be off the air. Um, all right, so it's 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 Bill Withers. The song is "Use Me," and it's uh, Sir James Gadson on the drums. And we're gonna play it at about uh, two forty. And then you act real rude to me. That's, I feel like, one of the basically the great moments in recording history, you know, is that little 10 seconds of the claps and the sort of syncopated interplay, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, he's, again, one of those legends, Bill Withers, and then, you know, Gadsden and, and the band and the sort of sound of it, the, the, the recording sound, that um, it's so sort of part of the fabric of music and pop music, you know. Um, that you you sometimes just ignore it or write it off because it's just there and it's like so big you know and and maybe you don't pay attention to it it's um but when i i put that track on on a good set of studio monitors some years ago and you know just kind of live in the track play it loud and you really really hear it on a different level you know it's it's a work of art and i think you know bill i love bill where this to begin with but um you know the just just like i don't know what i would say i guess intent is the word that keeps coming up you know and in his hi-hat sort of solidity and um the patience to just sit there and play that groove and not fuck around and be a part of the band be a part of the song mm -hmm. you know is is key because they're great songs and they're minimal and there's not a lot of frills and it's one of those things where, like, when you know you have a great song, you don't have to do stuff, you know? You don't have to fuck around. Yep. And the fact that that clap thing happens one time, and it's, like, well into the song, they didn't milk it. They didn't go, like, holy shit, that's awesome. Let's do that, like, five more times, you know? Yep. They just left it the once. And it's, it's that sort of wisdom and restraint that makes it such a sort of special moment. I think whether you even pay attention to it or not, it's like, you know, when you play music for kids, I've got two young, I've got a four-year-old and, and like an 18-month-old. And when you put music on, you can watch them and you know something's a hit or you know something's good when they respond to it because there's no intellectualization going on, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pure feel thing and a subconscious thing. And it's, it's one of those records where you can switch your brain off and just experience it, experience it 
And it's like it's like your whole sort of self knows that this is it, you know, <laughs> this is totally. right. It's how it should be. And so it feels like some sort of moment that just occurred in history and magic that like it has that sort of status for me. <laughs> yeah, I still, no matter how much I practice uh, since that conversation with him, because I was talking to you about a lot of times I try and play along to the drumming of the guests so I can kind of internalize what they're going through. And that that open hi-hat thing, I always, I tell myself, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be behind the beat on this one. I always rush that because <laughs> it's this kind of weird you almost feel like you're gonna fall off your stool because you kind of have yeah. to like lean away, and it's uh, yeah. And he just it's like a rug pull. Somebody pulls a rug from exactly, you. Exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, Jesse, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, man. Uh, I think no, that, this was fun, dude. It was a lot of fun for me. It's it's much overdue just getting to chat with you because I mean, when you said that you had an 18 month old, I was like, oh my god, it has been that long since we've been out on the road and and stuff. So, yeah. Damn. I know it's, it's it's weird. I I haven't thought about drums or played drums much, and you know since since that tour, and I'm <laughs> I'm okay with that, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of been fun to to actually think about it and formulate it and say well, like, well, what would I say about drums, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because as you know, you get two drummers together, and it's like they could literally go on for hours, you know. So it's nice to like not do that for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jesse, it's always a pleasure, man, and uh, have a great night. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ben. And thank you for the big fat snare drum support. This, you know, I love that stuff. You make us sound good, so why not? <laughs> and that's the show. Be sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on a platform that allows for ratings or reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, which means the show will get better and bigger. And hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'd be an OG listener that could brag to all your friends. Um, anyways, also, why don't you go ahead and check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the socials. Just search for at BigFatSnareDrum and you will find it. This show is edited in part using Isotope RX-8 Audio Editor. It's amazing. So go check that out at Isotope.com. Bye.